morning, church. As we wrap up Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, we're also um, wrapping up our series, which we have titled, Called to be Saints, Embracing Our Identity in Christ. And um, just to lay a little framework before we take a peek again, Paul throughout Ephesians focuses for the first three chapters utterly and entirely on what God has done. There's not a single command or imperative given in the first three chapters except once, and it's the command to remember, which is weird because remember focuses on what? In the context, what God has done. So it's still really reiterating and emphasizing um, the works of God. It's not until chapter four that he starts to give us application. But all of that application is built on, grounded on the therefore that makes the hinge between chapters one and three and chapters four through six. And so really what we've been looking at here is, is not just the first topic in Ephesians, it's the primary topic in Ephesians. And where we're going to go from here builds on and extrapolates and expands what we've seen and what we've been learning. But if we wanted to sum it all up, we could sum it up primarily with this single idea. That God has done something great and marvelous in Christ. And because we are believers in him, we have great and precious and abundant blessings to enjoy. And they're not just resources in the sense of available assets at our disposal, but they actually ground us in a new identity. They actually uh, explain our lives in a fresh way by placing us in a new story. In other words, because we have been connected to Christ, we have been joined into God's great work that centers around Christ. And so we saw a few weeks ago that God's whole plan, chapter 1, verse 10, is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, So as we are joined to Christ, we are connected to the spine of God's plan in history. Where we are right now in chapter 1, Paul has transitioned from giving us this huge worshipful list of what God has done in the first 13 verses, 14 verses, uh, to a recorded prayer. But it's important that we notice again, even this morning, that the, repair, that the prayer that begins in verse 15 starts with the phrase, for this reason. In other words, it's not just a random prayer. It's not just a separate aspect of the liturgy of what Paul's doing, and he's like, oh, I should also pray for you. It is a concluding prayer to everything he shared. Now, one of the things I love about the prayers of Paul in the New Testament or the prayers of Jesus or even the prayers of Abraham or Jacob or Isaiah in the Old Testament is because they are not just the words of men recorded in Scripture, but Scripture and therefore the Word of God, we can utilize them not just to grow in prayer, but to understand what it is God really wants for us. In other words, the prayers of Scripture connects, connects us with God's desires for us. To put it a different way, what I would suggest you can do with the prayers of Scripture is not just use them as models, which is great, but reverse engineer them. Flip them around. 
and go, why is Paul praying for this? If we know that it's God's will, what is it that God wants to see in our life? Now, nothing will bolster your prayer life by having that little epiphany, that these are not just maybe things God wants to do so you should ask, but things God is commanding you to pray because he wants to give them to you, okay? Now, with that in mind, what I'd like to do is reread this prayer in its entirety from verse 15 to the end of the chapter, and we're just going to focus on the third request that Paul makes this morning. We'll talk more about that after we read it, but let's pick up here in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, would you help us in our understanding of this prayer this morning? Would you give us, even as Paul has requested here, the spirit of wisdom and revelation? That would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we can understand the things that Paul is praying, that we would understand so that we can build our lives upon the truth. We ask, God, that you would show us the significance of the power that now works towards us in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Ephesians is probably my favorite New Testament book. It was significant to me when I became a Christian. It was significant to this church when it began. This is the book that we first opened on Sundays together. It's been significant to me as I'm in seminary now and re-exploring things. I've focused most of my attention on this book. And one of the greatest epiphanies I've had recently of the book of Ephesians is how it is all tightly connected and woven together. And that's easy to miss, especially in a church like this where we take a handful of verses every week for a couple of months to work through a book. The letter was written most likely to be read aloud to a congregation in a single sitting. It is a unity. It is all together one thing and it is connected. There is a way that we can supplement that sensibility besides just reading it by yourself from beginning to end. I would encourage you to develop a practice of paying attention to repeated words and phrases, okay? Because that shows us, hey, I'm reiterating hey, I'm emphasizing, hey, I'm returning to this thing I mentioned earlier. Sometimes I think that the writing of scripture is like uh, the stitching of a quilt. And every once in a while you see the needle come up and then it goes right back down and ties back into what he was already saying. In this place, 
I want you to notice that here Paul prays primarily for three things, and they're all beginning with the phrase that you would know. That's where he starts. Look again at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Okay, that's all groundwork. All leading to that you may know. Okay, so he says, I'm praying that God would help you to know. He'd help you by giving you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He'd help you by enlightening your heart so that you can understand, so that you might know. And then he gives us three items, and we find those in uh, verse 18. That you may know what is, one, the hope to which he has called you. Two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, and so on and so forth. Now, the reason I'm reiterating this, because I'm sure that Andy mentioned it last week, is because I want you to notice proportionately where Paul spends his time. Okay, Look at the first request again. What is the hope to which he called you? Seven words. And then the next one. What is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? There's some synonyms there, so it's a little bit longer, but still about ten words. But then when he gets to verse 19, he goes on all the way to verse 23 on this last point. He wants you to know about the hope. He wants you to know about the inheritance, but he really, really, really wants you to know about the power. Okay. It's where he spends all his time and he leaves it in the conclusion so he can expand it and unpack it. And I would suggest to you that Paul doesn't stop talking about power at the end of verse 23. Because when we get to chapter 2, which begins with an and, he's really continuing to talk about this power. Now he's just doing it personally. We'll return to that a little bit later. And when he gets to chapter 3, he continues to talk about that power. In fact, notice what it says in his second prayer in the book of Ephesians in chapter 3. Okay, notice what he says here in verse 16 in this prayer, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Okay, and then look at verse 18, so that you may have strength to comprehend. Okay, so what does he pray first in the prayer we're looking at this morning? That you would know the power available to you. What does he pray in chapter 3? That you would be strengthened by the power available to you. And then turn over to chapter 6, near the end of the book. Look at what he says in chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, in conclusion, right? Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. You see that? I pray that you would know the power available to you. I pray that you'd be strengthened in it. And now I'm exhorting you, be strong because you've been strengthened. Okay? This is the entire thread that runs through the book of Ephesians. This is what he wants to emphasize and focus on. Why? Well, if you look in chapter 6, it's because the context of the Christian life is one of warfare. It's one of difficulty. Like Warren Wearsby famously said, Christian life is not a playground but a battleground. Okay, that's the imagery that Paul is driving towards. In fact, As we will see in a moment when we go back to chapter 1, 
Here again in chapter 6, he mentions the powers and principalities and authorities of spiritual darkness. Look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Strong language, okay? In fact, if you just read that, take it out of context and basically say this is describing the enemy. This is describing where we're at, if you will, this is describing the need, then suddenly the resources become significant. Now, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you would look at your life and resonate with how Paul describes it here, that your life is by definition a wrestling with cosmic powers and spiritual forces of darkness. Okay, But this is something we're going to discover through the book of Ephesians. The problem of human life is much worse, according to Paul, than you might think, okay? The issue that Jesus came to solve is much more profound than you might think. We'll see this extensively when we get to the problem presented in Ephesians 2 next week, okay? But what I want to draw your attention to this morning is just a compact, simple, two-part idea. One, The Christian life is one that requires strength. Two, the strength required for the Christian life has been provided. Okay. That's what Paul is trying to convey. That's what he's trying to point out. He's saying you are incapable of accomplishing God's will in your life on your own. But God will make you capable in Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, Power is what Paul wants to draw our attention to. It's what he prays that we would know. But let's look at this power again in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Okay. So he begins here with a description, and it's a big description. He doesn't just say that you would know his power, but that you would know the immeasurable greatness of it. In other words, he wants you to plumb the depths of it. He wants you to explore the outer regions. He wants you to test it and discover that it's not just powerful, but that it's immeasurably great in his power. And he doesn't end with the adjectives there. Look at what he says in verse 20. Um, uh, Sorry, at the end of verse 19. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Okay. So, a measurable greatness of power according to the working of his great might. He's just heaping related words here. He exhausts the thesaurus for power terms in Greek here to get his point across. Okay. What this suggests is sufficiency. Right? What this suggests is an overabundance of what is necessary. But he doesn't just describe it hyperbolically. He doesn't just present it like a car salesman, you know, with lots of big imagery to get you to buy in. He also describes it. And it's this description I want to draw your attention to, because notice what he says. He says, according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ. What is the measure of God's power that Paul prays that we would be strengthened by? 
He says it's the same power that worked in Christ. Okay? And so he presents Jesus here not merely, we will see, as an illustration, but as exhibit A. And what did that power do? Notice first that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and two, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that's named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put, three, all things under his feet and four, gave him as head to the church. In explaining the depth of the power or the strength available to us, he gives us four dimensions, four aspects of what God has already done, past tense, in Jesus Christ, so that we would get a sense of feel for the power. Okay. Now, notice the first one again. It's the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, again, two simple points. One, the power that we're talking about here is resurrection power. It's power that takes something that is dead and gives it life. It's power that is inherently, by definition, miraculous, right? This is not just the paddles resuscitating a human being, right? This is completely dead, now alive. This is against the grain of human experience. In fact, outside of the handful of resuscitations that Jesus and the prophets have done where somebody was brought back to life only to die again, Jesus at this very moment is unique in being the only one who was dead and is now alive and is alive and will be alive forever and ever. Amen. Okay? It's unique. Can't be done in a laboratory. There's no other example or illustration. But what is Paul saying about this power? That's the same power that God is working towards you. Okay. One of the things that Paul wants to get across to us this morning and across all of Ephesians, again, is that because we are in Christ, everything is different. And this follows with, it touches upon that point. Because what God did in Jesus Christ is not just an illustration. It's not just a flexing of God's power, like, look, I can do this, why can't you trust me with that? It is something that significantly impacted your life. And it's something that informs what God is going to do in your life. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body. Okay. Not can, will because you are in Christ now that in and of itself seems sufficient another place in 1 Corinthians Paul identifies the last enemy of human life as death itself right it's it's the one that apart from Christ is completely undefeated okay in all of the battles you will face in your life there is one that you are subject to lose and that's death no matter what. But God took care of that in Jesus Christ. What's striking, though, is that Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, brothers and sisters, 
Why are you really worried about A, B, and C? Why are you so overwhelmed by your weakness? Why are you so afraid? Don't you know that Jesus is alive? That would be sufficient. But he continues, and notice what he says next. So not only did he raise him from the dead, but notice verse 20 here, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is still a description of the power, isn't it? He raised him and seated him. Notice there's no period there. Paul hasn't moved on to a new idea. And so he takes one measurement, he pulls the tape out, and he says, resurrection power. And then he takes another uh, measurement, and he says, seated at the right hand of the Father power. Okay. Now, one of the things that's easy to miss when we read the New Testament, is the dependency of the authors of the New Testament on the Old Testament. And this is one of the places where Paul is not making it up as he goes along. This is one of the places where Paul is quoting from the Psalms to make a point about who Jesus is. A pre-existing, pre-understood, expected point about who Jesus would be in the Psalms. But what's interesting is Psalm 8 focuses not very clearly or specifically on God's chosen one, the Messiah, but on humanity in general. In fact, if you can, just turn there with me for just a second. Psalm 8, right in the middle of your Bible. For time's sake, let's pick up in verse 3. The psalmist says, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Now don't get distracted there, because I know that one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself is the son of man. Here, all the psalmist means, what? why do you care about humans and their children? Right? He's just talking about people here. But notice what he says about people, verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, which is the same thing that Paul says in a second about Jesus in verse 20. But here he's not talking about the Messiah. He's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about Adam. He's talking about Genesis. When God creates man and woman, he says, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. This is the initial great commission. This is the one that's given to Adam and Eve before everything goes wrong. They are to representatively, according to God's character and on his behalf, rule over the world that he has given them cultivate the world so that the Garden of Eden spreads until the whole world is full of the glory of God. That's the plan. That's what the psalmist is rejoicing in here. But that's not where the story continues. Because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and because of the progressive and vicious cycle of the fall on human life, we no longer exist in this place. For you who are visiting and aren't Christians this morning, when you hear us talk about the fall or fallen, this is what we're talking about. 
our God-given plan and destiny to have a relationship with him and on his behalf cultivate a beautiful world. But we've fallen from that. But what Jesus did effectively is not only did he come down and die so that we might live, but he came down under the curse so that he might bear the curse so that he might be appointed to the position that Adam failed and lost. In Jesus Christ, humanity has taken the throne again. Now, Jesus is more than human, but he's no less than. He became a man and is a man and will always be a man. And as such, he restores our humanity. Now, I know this is a, a big idea, and it's not even one we can spend a lot of time on because it's, it's, it's a contextual point, not Paul's primary point. But what he's talking about here is that in Jesus Christ, humanity has been restored to its rightful place, seated at the right hand of the Father, okay? But even there, he doesn't stop. In fact, here, he once again describes, and notice what he says, he says that he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, and then he describes it this way, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Whereas resurrection power emphasizes life-giving power, it emphasizes an energy, it emphasizes a miracle, this seated at the right hand, far above the authority's power, emphasizes authority, right? Which is its own type of power, right? Authority means you've been imbued with the power of control or decision-making or determining, right? You've been imbued with the authority to do something. And how far is Jesus's authority here? Above every name, above every throne, this is why the New Testament identifies Jesus as King of Kings, or Lord of Lords, or President of Presidents, or CEOs of CEOs, or bosses of bosses. It doesn't matter. Make any flowchart for authority for any organization, and you have to leave a spot at the top for Jesus. That's what it's saying here. This is the power that is available to us. It's like a similar way that Paul puts it in another letter when he says that we have access to the throne room, appeal to the potentate, right? That's the idea here is that Jesus is at the right hand, that there is no higher or more supreme court, that there is no greater or more true authority in fact, not only has he been placed there, and again, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Notice the order there. We would tend to think about this as being Jesus' authority being someday in the age to come, but also in this age, maybe we would say. But Paul puts it the other way around. He says, any authority that will ever be will never be greater than Jesus. But look at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. Okay. That's a very picturesque language. 
And it might even be one that you're uncomfortable with because you wouldn't want anyone to step on your neck. Okay? But it's one that's used consistently in the Psalms for the Messiah. So Psalm 2, right at the beginning. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, same language we're reading here, until I make your enemies a footstool. Where does a footstool go? Under the foot. Okay? But the idea here is one of dominion, not just by appointment, but by reality. Okay? In other words, the first one has to do with official title. The second one has to do with real subjection. It, it, it would be better described as conquering. Okay? In other words, right here, Paul recognizes that those powers and principalities and authorities and dominions, and it doesn't matter if they're on earth or in heaven. It doesn't matter if we're talking about physical governments and human beings or if we're talking about spiritual beings and spiritual forces. Jesus has not only been put above all of them, but they will all be put under him. Okay? It leaves room here for resistance and for rebellion it leaves room here to recognize that there are powers who want nothing to do with submission to Jesus, but Jesus will subject them. Okay. To put it a different way, it's not just that Jesus has been given the ultimate authority. He will reorder all authority under his he will set down and put down and end rebellion. And actually, that's really good news. Because if you read in the prophets about the perfect world that God is moving towards, it's a world of justice and peace. Because evil no longer rules or reigns. That's what this is talking about. But again, this is not just about what God is doing in Jesus Christ. This is the power that works towards you. Now that's significant. Because what do we experience? We experience a world of contentious, self-serving powers that do what they want for their own sake and not for those they serve. And nobody can stop them because they have the power. In fact, there has probably been way deep in your stomachs this morning a discomfort just because I've said the word power so often. As a culture, we are afraid of power, primarily because we know that power is powerful. We worry about what it can accomplish when it's in the wrong hands. In fact, what did Lord Acton say, right? Power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts ultimately, right? That idea is woven into our consciousness so that we're pretty sure the best way to be righteous is to be least powerful. And so we get uncomfortable with language like footstool or rule with a rod of iron, another psalm reference. We're uncomfortable with the idea of power because we are so fully acquainted with its abuses. But I want you to notice two things here. First, I want you to recognize that the same Jesus it talks about ruling and reigning over all the powers here is the same Jesus we read about in the Gospels. Do we get that? 
Do we understand that the Jesus who loved and served and took care of the poor and needy and defended the vulnerable, that the same Jesus who came and loved every human being he encountered with an unadulterated and perfect love is the same Jesus we're talking about here? In fact, this was so significant, Jesus told his disciples, for even the Son of Man, pointing to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is appointed King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and what does he use that power for? For you. To give you life. To bring you back into restored relationship with God and with one another. To help you to overcome the sin and selfishness that destroys your life. At his cost. Freely and willingly. In fact, notice the last statement here. You remember the Sesame Street song, One of These Things is Not Like the Others? And there'd be four pictures, and three of them would basically be the same thing, and then there'd be one that just had nothing to do, right? Listen to this last verb here. So he's given us raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand, put all things under his feet, and then notice the fourth one here, and gave him as head over the church. Gave him. Okay, every other one makes sense when we think of power, but giving is usually a weakening reality. You have a thing, you give the thing away, you no longer have the thing, you have less. That's how giving works. What we have described for us is the power over death, the power of an ultimate appointment is the authority over things, the power that puts all rebellion to an end, and then that power is given. Now again, I want you to remind, or I want to remind you this morning that the order here is significant. It's not Jesus gave his life, so God gave him power. We could say that, right? We could go back to the beginning before raised him from the dead and say, why did Jesus die? He died for you. He gave his life is the language we would use. But here, giving leads to power, which leads to what? More giving. Jesus takes the power that he has has, and gives it for us. God gives him more power. And again, we encounter this word for giving. Verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Now pay attention to the grammar there. This matters. He doesn't say and gave him as head over all things. It says he gave him his head over all things to the church. It doesn't say he gave him his head to the church. It says he gave him his head over all things to the church. In other words, the relationship between Christ and the church and the relationship between all those rulers, authorities, principalities in the church are not, and Jesus are not the same. In this image, where are all the rulers, authorities, powers, and principalities? Under Jesus' foot. Where's the church? It's his body. This is not you are under Jesus. This is you are with Jesus. So significant. In fact, again, Paul's primary point here is not just the power that was demonstrated in Jesus, 
but the power that is demonstrated in you in Jesus. And I'll show you. What are the two verbs that begin this list of power again? Raised and seated. Look at chapter 2. First, just notice verse 1. And you. Okay, what was he just talking about in chapter 1? And in him. He's continuing the thought. He says, and you. But jump forward to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us, what? Alive together with Christ. And then look at verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. What did God do with Jesus? He raised him up and seated him. What did God do with you? He raised you up and seated you. Past, present, future tense. Past tense. If you are in Christ, you have been raised. If you are in Christ, you have been seated. In fact, you can't see this in the English, but the verbs here in chapter 1 and chapter 2 are the same, except for one little difference. A little prefix at the beginning of the word, soon, like where we get synthesis. It's just a, a tiny little particle that means with. And so Jesus was raised, and we were raised with him. Jesus was seated, and we were seated with him. You see what Paul's doing in chapter 2 as we get to it next week? He's saying, let me tell you more about the power that God works towards you. Jesus is not just exhibit A. He's the A to Z, and you've been grafted into that alphabet, so you experience it. It's as if I were to take a piece of paper right here. And because you are in Christ, Christ being this book, I put the paper in here and I shut it. What happens to the book now happens to the paper. That's what it means to be in Christ. But the point and the purpose here is you have been made part of the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of the body. But with Christ, you have become part of this raised and seated reality, far above all powers and principalities and authorities. Okay. In fact, let's look at the last little phrase here in verse 23. All things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay. Now this is tough language. What does it mean when it says the church is his body? That makes sense. Body, head. Okay, it's a metaphor the New Testament uses all the time. We're one flesh with Jesus. We're connected with him. Okay. But when it says the fullness of him who fills all in all, I think most of us tap out. I don't know what that means. Okay. And you're not alone. This is something that theologians have been discussing and debating, and the origin of this language is something that they try and work through. But I want you to, ju- I want you to just understand some simple, bare-naked truths about this. Okay. It says here two things. One, that the church is the fullness of Jesus, and then it identifies Jesus as the one who fills all in all. Okay. In other words... There's a purpose statement here. What is God doing in Jesus Christ? He's filling all in all. This may be similar to the multiple times in the New Testament where God states his agenda as filling the whole world with his glory until the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. 
But Paul gives us a little bit of a clue of what's going on here when he returns to this idea of power in chapter 3. Remember how I pointed out that the prayer in chapter 3 seems to continue this thought? I want you to notice how it finishes here. Chapter 3, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Same language again. Here's what I would suggest is a helpful way to think about this. Paul in chapter 2 and again in chapter 3 refers to the church as the temple of God. What is the purpose of a temple? Biblically, it's to be the place where God dwells. And so when the tabernacle is dedicated, it says, and the tabernacle was filled with the glory of the Lord so that the priest couldn't even minister. And when Solomon built his temple and dedicated it, it says that the temple was filled with the glory of God. Okay. The goal of a temple is to be full. Now let me put it all together. This is what I'm suggesting this whole idea means. God's agenda is to fill the whole earth with his glory by building us, the church, as a new temple and filling us. And so this means two things. One, that there's a depth of the fullness of God that God wants us as a church to experience. And two, that he wants that church to grow and expand until it fills the whole earth. To unite, again, verse 10 of chapter 1, in the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on the earth. God is going to set the world right in Jesus Christ, and he does it in two ways. One is that he draws people into his body so that they may be filled with the very fullness of God, restored to their places they're supposed to be in human beings, and partnering with God in this great work. And then also to be over all powers and authorities and principalities. Okay. But the two go together. They're both part of the agenda. They're both part of the mission. Now I think this suggests one more thing. Because the purpose of a temple is not a container for God. Right? God doesn't need a house. He doesn't fit in a temple. It's a representation. And in the same way here, the idea of us being the fullness, I think you could also say manifestation. In other words, how will the world know about the power that worked in Christ in these ways? Because it's made manifest in his church. What demonstrates the power of God raising Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago? The experience we have as a church of resurrection life. What demonstrates that Jesus sits in the heavenly places above all powers and principalities? It's when we live as more than conquerors, to use Paul's language from the book of Romans. Okay. We are the demo house of what God is doing in the kingdom of heaven. We are the illustration. We are the fullness, the manifestation. We are the body, his hands and feet. All of those ideas emphasize the same thing. And I want to talk to three groups of people based on what we've learned this morning. Paul prays here that we would know this power. And I'm going to point out what I think is obvious. He wants you to know this power so that you would know it. 
experience it, so that you would encounter it, so that you would be changed by it, so that it would play out in your life, right? So let me talk first to the fearful. Why do the fearful need to know? Well, just look at the first thing Jesus did here. God raised him from the dead. Now, to be honest, fear is a very broad reality. We can be afraid of death, but we can also be afraid of spiders or clowns, okay? But I want you to recognize what fear is, is a sense of vulnerability, right? You're not afraid of things that you're not afraid of. You're not afraid of things that can't hurt you. You're not afraid of things that make sense to you. You're afraid of things that have unknowing potential to do you harm. You're afraid of things that manifest your own weakness, vulnerability, mortality. And fear is a dominating reality in the human life. We're afraid of poverty. We're afraid of insurrection. We're afraid of violence. We're afraid of cancer. We're afraid of foreigners. Fear extends to all of these places. But the power that Paul is praying that we would know this morning is the power that conquered death. This is why the psalmist all the time asks himself this question, why am I afraid? Now we need to be clear here. How is it that Jesus experienced the power of resurrection? Through crucifixion. What I'm saying here is not that God has power to protect you from everything you're afraid of. What I'm saying is that God has power to bring you through everything that you're afraid of. I'm not saying you're not going to die. I'm saying that God will raise you to life. And in the same way, I'm not saying that you will never experience poverty. I'm saying that you will experience the power of God in the midst of poverty. I'm not saying you will never be diagnosed with cancer, but I am saying that God who raised Jesus from the dead will be present and working in those circumstances. God won't keep you from the things you're afraid of, but he will keep you. I also this morning want to talk to the independent. One of the greatest, prohi- uh, greatest inhibitors to knowing the power of God is a sense of self-sufficiency. And again, this takes all sorts of different ways. For some of us, self-sufficiency just comes from sort of an automatic pilot that this is all there is, this is what I have to work with, and we just go with it. For others, it stems from a terrible sense of insecurity. And so we feel we have to be self-sufficient because no one else has got got our back. No one else will protect us. Nobody else can really promise me, so I have to strive and struggle and work to keep safe. For others, independence comes because we are people of great ambition. We want to be the G-O-A-T, right? We want to ascend the ladder. And oftentimes, why do we want to be there? It's from that same insecurity. Life is not significant enough or safe enough or beautiful enough or powerful enough unless I get the top rung. 
But if God is uniting all things in Jesus Christ, and not by uniting him around Jesus as the center, but by uniting him around Jesus as king, you can give up on your ambitions. The greatest of all time has already been named. The king of kings position is fulfilled. Okay. And as for your insecurities, as for those realities, every power you face, every authority that could do you harm, doesn't have the authority that Jesus does. And everyone that lives in rebellion to him will be realigned, put to place, and set right. But this means that you are not independent. This means that this idea that God's desire for you is just to, you know, stretch back your shoulders, stand upright, and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It means that this idea that God did the first part and forgave you of all your sins, but now you've got to figure out the rest for yourself. Every one of these ideas doesn't understand what God wants of us, which is dependence. God doesn't just say, life's going to be hard, so you better suck it up and get strong. He says, you are weak, and I am your strength. We have to watch out for independence, especially in the Christian life, because the Christian life is ambitious. It's a complete revolution of the way that we live, of the temptations that we resist, of the vices that we put down, of the virtue that we build, of striving for new character, of seeking to change and impact the world and love our neighbors. It is huge. And it was designed to be too much for you but the power that is now working towards you is a power of dependence, one that God is readily available to give. I want to talk to one last category this morning, which is the skeptic. Again, in a world like ours, dogmatic, emphatic statements of power especially when they're religious in nature and use military language, make us uncomfortable. It is appropriate to recognize that if the Bible proclaims Jesus as Lord, that you either have to give your allegiance to him or not. And if you do, it is total and utter and complete allegiance. You can't take Jesus on as a consultant. You can't refer to a second opinion. If Jesus is Lord, then it demands total and utter obedience. I don't want to downplay that. But I do want to reiterate, for those of us who are uncomfortable with that level of surrender, that we are surrendering to Jesus, and that makes all the difference. That this is the power that God worked in Jesus so that he might give him as head to the body. Even that language of head may make you uncomfortable. And if you were raised in the church and you know, uh, you know how the Bible even talks about marriage, that might make you uncomfortable. With husband as head, as head of the wife. But I want you to notice how Paul talks about that even here in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Now, you got to have open ears for this. We'll deal with marriage eventually. I'm not talking about marriage this morning. And I would suggest to you that what I'm about to read, Paul is not talking about marriage. 
So listen to what he actually says, but notice what he says here in, uh, in verse 25 of chapter 5. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might. Now in verse 26, that he might. Who's the pronoun referring to? Husbands or Jesus? Jesus. Listen to what Jesus does as head of the body. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless and without blemish. That's Jesus' agenda as head. Is it so that he might subject you and make you a servant so that you will accomplish things because he wants to take a vacation? Is it that you might listen to every beck and call because he is, it's not about him at all. He gave himself for the church and he washes and sanctifies so that he might present her perfect to himself. This is the power that we're talking about. This is the authority that we're talking about. This is the one that we're talking about surrendering. You know, even Bob Dylan understood that you have to serve somebody. <laughs> who better to make the Lord of your life than the one who gave his life and has devoted his eternal life to giving you abundant life? Who better to entrust with all of the decisions that are too big for you who better to trust when life gets deep and dark and difficult? Who better to proclaim publicly? None. This is why the good news is good news. It's not just because God is powerful enough to fix your life. It's that he's so loving and so good that he did it at cost to himself. And not only that, but he did it in a way that empowers you to live it out and to experience it to the fullest. Now do you understand why Paul is praying for this church and praying that God would enlighten them, that God would open up their hearts to this message? It's because there is a deep distrust in all of us that God really has our best interest at heart. But we have to learn, like Paul, to look at exhibit A and know that the one who raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father, far above all rulers and authorities and powers and principalities and every name that is named, either in this age or in the age to come, and put them all under his feet, has also given him to the church as head, so that the church may be the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, whether we're afraid or independent or skeptical or something else this morning, God, we just want to... <laughs> rejoice in this reality that even even these things you say that we can't know on our own we can't discover them paul has to pray that you would do what we cannot and open our eyes and so we pray that you would do that this morning give us the wisdom and the revelation of knowledge 
enlighten our hearts to understand that the power that God worked in Christ is the power he works towards us. That what God did in and for Jesus Christ, he did for us through Jesus Christ. That every circumstance, every obstacle, every difficulty, every oppressive power, every authority, whether on this earth or in the spiritual places that we don't understand, is nothing in comparison to our head, Jesus. And I pray that you would teach us, not only in inches and centimeters, but even in leaps and bounds, that you would teach us that we can entrust all things to Jesus. Because Jesus has been given all things, and he used those things for us. Pray, Lord, that we would experience in our life what it means to be in Christ and that it would be manifest to one another and to our neighbors that the very fullness of God dwells in our life, gives it meaning and purpose and security and beauty. We ask for all these things in the name of Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and by his own blood and because of his love is also the Savior of sinners. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's spend some time worshiping the Lord together.